ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 19th of December. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. We're going to far north Queensland first. The record-breaking floods are easing across the region, but emergency rescues are still continuing and waterlogged communities remain cut off with no power and limited phone reception. Locals are using fishing boats and mustering helicopters to rescue people who've scrambled up trees and onto rooftops to survive, as Gavin Coote reports. When Gavin Deere heard there were people stranded on the roof of a pub, he jumped in his tinny and made his way up the swollen Annan River near Cooktown. This is all bits of our house, all through here. As he and a friend were making their way towards the pub, he heard cries for help coming from the trees. Can you wave? Hi, oh, yeah, Yep. Gavin Deere, who's a well-known musician in the region, told ABC Far North he's never seen the Annan River so high. There was probably five or six hundred metres wide water, big, fast flowing brown water. We got to his tree and, um, yeah, this fellow was, he was in uncontrollable shakes and he was all cramped up too because he'd been hanging on there. A shipping container had been washing past and nearly squashed him up there. And um, that shipping container actually, believe it or not, was actually suspended on top of the main Cooktown transmission power lines. And as the river's gone down, it's dragged those power lines down with it. Um, That's the extent and the depth of the flooding that's come down the Annan, which is, I don't know what even the word is now, but we've used amazing, unbelievable, biblical. As the intense rainfall has eased, more stories of bravery and survival are emerging. While Gavin Deere was focusing on the tree rescue, another local was plucking people from the pub rooftop. This fella's the real hero of the story. His name's Magoo. He made 16 trips. It's only a, a Robinson 22, a single person. And he made 16 trips and landed on that roof in the pissing rain where no other chopper pilot would fly. And he rescued every single one of those people and took them back to the Helen Vale airstrip. So, you know, hats off to Magoo. He did a bloody heroic job. While we were rescuing these other dudes, he was just running people back and forward. So, yeah, and as I said, a gutsy effort in a, in a Robinson 22 you know, in flying in heavy rain. Um, I know that that damages the rotors very quickly. So whoever owns that chopper, whether it's Magoo or not, they're going to be up for a bill to fix those rotors. They've got to change all sorts of bits and pieces. The small Indigenous community of Wujul Wujul, a bit further south, is among the hardest hit. While a group stuck on the local hospital roof have managed to get down, Kylie Hanslow from the Shire Council says there's been enormous damage. We are staying positive and we're trying to keep that positive messaging happening that we do it together. We will do it together and we'll get through this together. But the thing is, though, it's really hard on the ground for people. It's really hard when everything's falling apart and people can only do that for so long. Dave McLean owns Same Day Granny Flats, a Cairns business specialising in mobile homes. He's worried about where displaced far north Queenslanders will live. Renting a, a house in Cairns at the moment is near on impossible. So what has happened in the past is not only government agencies purchasing these on a temporary basis, is that insurance companies purchase them, put them on the people's existing blocks so that they can have accommodation at their own home. Gavin Coote compiled that report. Warren Inch is the federal member for Leichhardt, which includes Cairns and Cape York. Warren, good morning. Welcome to AM. Good morning, Sabra. Some amazing, 
some amazing descriptions there of what locals have been doing to help one another, like Magoo. Have you seen anything like this? Oh, no, not to this extent, although we do stand together. Just another example, uh, there were some people, uh, rangers that were stuck at Melsonby Station, that's uh, west of Cooktown, with the flooding of the Normanby River, and they were, they were absolutely buggered. But it was a, it was the people at Olivale Station at Laura, they put their chopper up, flew in there, picked them up and pulled them off. There were so many examples of that type of uh, of assistance, and and you know the reality is we, we were caught totally, totally uh, unaware of what was about to occur in relation to the the rain, and this is my big concern here. I mean, we talk about uh, Woodjul Woodjul. I mean, the Bluefield River blue burst its banks. I mean, it's not just uh, Woodjul, but Ayton and uh, you know other other small communities around the area. The big problem up there is not just the debris. I mean, the Bloomfield River is full of big crocodiles. So you just don't go swimming around there and, you know, suddenly you've got big crocodiles in their backyard. So, but nobody had any idea that this was going to occur. There's been some criticism about the Weather Bureau for not forecasting this. It doesn't seem like a normal Category 2 cyclone. Is that criticism valid? Should there be a review? (laughs) 100%. 100%. I raised concerns a couple of two or three years ago when when the Bureau decided to withdraw the majority of its assets out of far north Queensland and relocate them into Brisbane. Now, I had a number of, I wrote to them and raised concerns. I spoke to them about it and they gave me all the insurances of, assurances of the world that everything could be done remotely. Now, even at that point, I challenged them and said, I don't believe it's the case. Now, if you have a look at, wind forward to last week, we were told that there was going to be this massive, <coughs> uh, sorry, this massive cyclone, category one or two. Right? Everybody's focused on it. They flew up emergency services people from Brisbane. They took up all these commercial presenters from the, you know, the breakfast shows from Sydney and Melbourne to place them in strategic areas. They were getting fed information from the Bureau of Meteorology. They stood beside the same prop. They found a tree in Cairns and a tree in Port Douglas that had fallen over and a fence. And they stood beside that one tree and that one fence for three days and predicted Armageddon on a possible site, a Category 2 cyclone. Every day, same prop, because they couldn't find anything else that fallen down. There was no infrastructure damage anywhere. With it. And the cyclone hit about five kilometres south of Woodjul Woodjul. There were, and I spoke to the mayor you know, basically every you know every five or six hours to see everything was okay, no damage, and yet they continued to predict Armageddon. We had a, a, a the energy minister Mick De Bruni on Tuesday put out a, out a a tweet to say that they were going to disconnect all the power in the Can CBD because they were expecting this massive tidal surge, and that uh, we could start to lose the power. People were starting to panic. All the people working in the uh, emergency services were on edge all the way, to- waiting for this prediction to happen, and nothing happened. So on Thursday, uh, Thursday <clears throat> all the powers to be flew back to Brisbane. Thought it was done. All the all the presenters from Sydney and uh, Brisbane. Flew so back your home. point, your point being, they they missed it. Well, Cairns in the Cairns Post on Thursday said the worst is over, and then on Friday. 
bang. They had no idea. All their, all their models and they didn't predict it. They didn't know that there was this massive one in a hundred year event sitting right on the tail end of a Category 2 cyclone. And, and that's where the problem is. Nobody was prepared for it. No. You know, people could have been taken out. The people that have been on edge, all the emergency responders were on edge for days because listening to the, the uh, reports coming out of bomb waiting for the worst, and now when it did M- hit, they were buggered. They were Mr. so tired. Mr Ench, very quickly, what does the community need right now? What the community needs? Well, it needs two Chinook helicopters to come in and take out people out of Woodville, which I understand is being dispatched from Townsville on, 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 at 8 o'clock this morning, and get the supplies back in there. They've been out of supplies now for days. They can't go through the water. It's full of bloody crocodiles and debris. We need business. We've got businesses here in town that have been without power now for three or four days. You know, businesses like a seafood business that is full for Christmas. They've lost tens of thousands of dollars worth of stock already, but they're having to scratch around to get generators to keep their what they got left operational. All right. We've got to look at support for families. I mean, they've put uh, a, 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 we've had families here that have lost everything: their their, their cars, their house, but because they're earning over fifteen hundred dollars. Uh, gross, uh, they don't qualify. So all of these things need to be looked at practically, and we've got to give that support. And we've got to, we're getting this is a billion dollar event. I mean, with the roads and all, everything else that have been damaged here, let's get on and move on quickly, and let's make sure we hold the insurance companies to boot because they have held us at ransom now for the last decade or more. Let's make sure that we don't let them squirm out of this and jack up our prices even more. Warren Enchford, thanks for joining AM. Thank you very much, Shabba. Israel will gradually transition to the next phase of its war with Hamas, possibly allowing locals in Gaza to return to the north of the coastal strip. That's according to Israel's Defence Minister, Yoav Gallant, who gave that detail while standing alongside the United States Defence Secretary, Lloyd Austin, in Tel Aviv. Mr Lloyd's making his second visit to Israel since the October the 7th Hamas attacks. He says no timetable's been set for Israel to end its current phase of the war, but says more humanitarian aid must be delivered to Gaza. Middle East correspondent Tom Joyner has more. Touching down in Tel Aviv, US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin was received like an old friend. Mr Secretary, it's good to uh, welcome you and your delegation again. Austin is the latest Biden administration official to arrive in Israel, this time with a brief of de-escalating a war now in its third month. Pressure is growing on both Israel and its close ally, the US, to scale back its military campaign in Gaza that so far claimed nearly 20,000 Palestinian lives. And I'm also here to discuss how we can best support Israel on a path to lasting security. And that means tackling urgent needs first. We must get more humanitarian assistance uh, into the nearly two million displaced people in Gaza, and we must distribute that aid better. Humanitarian aid is on top of the agenda at a meeting of the UN Security Council, which will today hold another crucial vote. Its members will decide on a new ceasefire proposal designed to allow for desperately needed supplies to enter Gaza unhindered and for UN officials to monitor their delivery. Barely any aid has been able to get into Gaza since Israel imposed a total siege on the territory shortly after October 7, accelerating an existing humanitarian crisis. As the death toll continues to rise, Gazans face mass displacement and starvation 
and a lack of clean drinking water is enabling the spread of disease. Most of what has reached the territory has entered through the Rafah crossing from Egypt, where trucks are moving painfully slowly. We welcome the aid trucks that arrive from the Egyptian side, says this truck driver, Mohammed Al Hato. The aid coming in is not enough, and it doesn't come in every day. Trucks wait 17 or 18 days on the crossing. There's no facilitation. The Security Council in New York is a world away, and Palestinians aren't holding out hope today's vote will ease their suffering. The lack of critical supplies is no accident, according to Human Rights Watch. A new report from the international NGO has accused Israel of deliberately starving Palestinians in Gaza as a method of warfare, an act considered a war crime under international law. An Israeli government spokesperson falsely claimed in response that Israel had not placed any restrictions on food and water heading into Gaza. Humanitarian groups hope today's Security Council vote will help alleviate some of the dire need. Its success will come down largely to the US, which as a permanent member has the power to veto any resolution, a power it's used multiple times in support of Israel. This is Tom Joyner reporting for AM. Drones, or gliders as they're known in this case, are remotely monitoring the waters around Antarctica to give us a better idea on what's happening with the ocean temperatures and rising sea levels around the icy continent and the Southern Ocean. The autonomous probes can be remotely controlled from Hobart and the United States. With more, here's Nick Grimm. They sort of resemble a bright yellow torpedo with small wings. Underwater gliders launched from the deck of the CSIRO research vessel The Investigator are giving scientists a clearer picture of how warmer ocean currents are finding their way southwards. Video filmed on board shows them being lowered into the water and released. They're just like underwater drones. Drones fly in the air and you tell it where to go and then they take pretty pictures for you. But then glider is just like a drone that functions under the water. That's Luna Bai from the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, which is collaborating with the CSIRO and the Australian Antarctic Program Partnership. The drones will stay at sea for six to ten months, travelling up to 6,000 kilometres by adjusting their buoyancy to sink and rise on a zigzag course, monitoring the waters around them. And then while it's doing its dives, it has a bunch of sensors on it. It has temperature, it measures salinity, it measures dissolved oxygen, and it measures like particles in the water. All the while relaying that information to researchers back home, the gliders are just one part of the scientific kit deployed by the researchers who've spent the past five weeks at sea. There are also high-tech floats, buoys and a deep ocean mooring the height of 11 Eiffel Towers. That's along with sampling devices known as CTDs. They're large steel baskets of bottles resembling gas canisters that collect water from up to 4,000 metres below the surface, as Associate Professor Helen Phillips explains. The coldest in this bottle is 0.9 degrees that's come up from the bottom of the ocean. So that's really Antarctic bottom water that's made its way north here. And to be holding your hands in 0.9 degree waters doing a careful sampling procedure is pretty impressive, so I'm I'm very proud of my team. Along the way, the RV investigator and its crew have also mapped the floor of a 20,000 square kilometre area, finding soaring undersea mountains and eight dormant volcanoes. It's all part of an effort to understand the secrets of the Southern Ocean, and as the CSIRO's Dr Benoit Legressi explains, 
an extraordinary movement of water known as the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. That's the strongest current uh, on Earth, with a current that is uh, 150 times the older rivers of the, the world combined. And we're studying it to see how much of it is leaking warm waters from the north towards the pole. And in the process, contributing to the frozen continent's ice melt and rising sea levels. Nick Grimm. Victoria's Phillip Island is well known for its colony of little penguins. Before dusk, tourists watch the penguin parade as the birds waddle out of the surf up to their burrows. Now a team of experts and volunteers is taking action to protect the birds from fire by removing flammable shrubs and trees and replacing them with fire-retardant natives. Bridget MacArthur reports. On this very special section of Phillip Island, known by traditional owners as Malau, little penguins make their burrows and raise their young. Uh, So this is just, we just check this site once every fortnight, so I know her microchip number up the top there. Working here at this site called Summerlands, Paula Waziak is a research officer for Phillip Island Nature Parks. So this is the male. How can you tell? By the depth of their bill, by how thick that, yeah, yeah, males have thicker bills. Measuring the bills of the baby penguins is an important task. The bill length will give us an estimate of hatch date. So this one's pretty obvious it's a day old. But experts fear an emerging threat to the little penguins of Phillip Island. Also with the nature parks and responsible for the Summerland site is Simon Heisler. Fortunately we haven't had many instances of fire um, certainly break out across the peninsula here. Um, But with climate change and changing climate and and the risk of fire increasing and and intense fire increasing, the risk um, of of a catastrophic fire on the peninsula is uh, is ever increasing as is across Australia. Because penguins never evolved to deal with fire, they've got no idea what to do when it arrives. Simon Heislers has seen how vulnerable these creatures are. Two months ago, his colleague was going for a run on his day off when he smelt smoke. Following his nose, he discovered a small patch of newly burned grassland and in it, a dead penguin, still in its burrow next to two small eggs. And I think that just highlights the fact that you know penguins aren't well adapted at all to fire. That penguin did not leave that fire, it it, it burnt. So the fact is, it just had no fire sense at all. So they're, they're fire prone. The Nature Parks team is trying to make the little penguins' habitat safer. They've removed fire-prone trees and shrubs that had begun to dominate and planted fire-resistant native plants, some of which were lost to early farming practices. Uh, clearing of the fire breaks uh, started, well, occurred during May and June this year and then planting followed later on, sort of uh, August, September, October. So the planting was quite a big effort and involved a lot of volunteer assistance as well. We were able to put 15,000 plants in the ground in the end. It's a three-year project and less than a year in, things are going well. It's incredibly rewarding as an organisation that we are able to do this for the penguins. And I think it's important that we do harness that potential to be able to change that habitat. Paul Lawoziak from Phillip Island Nature Parks, Bridget MacArthur reporting there, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Are you an AI boomer or doomer? Do you think artificial intelligence will make the world a better place? Or are you worried it could destroy our way of life? 
Today, Professor Toby Walsh, the Chief Scientist at UNSW's AI Institute, on the recent fight over AI in Silicon Valley, and the latest innovations we need to know about. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.